about three years ago, Michael took uh, Lloyd and I up to uh, Chicago for um, the pastor's conference at the Moody Bible Institute. And uh, those of you who don't know, Michael was the president of Moody for about four years prior to moving here and joining our teaching team. And while we were up there, Michael was giving us a tour. We were seeing the buildings and where they do radio and, and the history of, of D.L. Moody. Michael's showing us around and everybody knows Dr. Michael Easley. Everybody knows Dr. Easley. It's like walking around with a celebrity. Well, come to find out in, in Chicago, at least, Michael actually is a celebrity. Well, Lloyd and I um, talked him into showing us his old office, and, and uh, so we go up onto this executive floor, this executive wing, and by wing, I mean large, very large. It, it was like the west wing of the White House. We go up to the ninth floor of the Kroll building, doors open, and on the wall, right across from the elevator, is this enormous spread about Dr. Michael J. Easley. It's like right there next to D.L. Moody, who I'm sure was next to Jesus P. Christ. It was unbelievable. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm looking at this thing. I'm like, man, where do I get a shrine? This is, uh, this is fantastic. So on this wall, it's got like um, his bio and favorite verse. And it's got, uh, oh, it's got a timeline of, of kind of the world history, the, the history of events that happened during the four years that Michael was president there. It's got his image and across the top of his image, which is like 17 by 39 feet, this image, and across the top of the image, it, it has this trademark saying that Michael says all the time. And if you have heard him say it, you can just finish it with me. It said, don't let the world teach you theology. Don't let the world teach you theology. If I've heard Michael say it once, I've heard him say it a thousand times. Don't let the world teach you theology. Let, let God's word teach you about the study of God. Let God's word teach you theology. And of course, it's Michael's trademark saying because it is his life's mission. His desire is to help the church, you and I, know all there is to know about God that's found in this book. And I discovered this week that Michael's in good company. He's in really good company. Because when we open to Luke chapter 20 in just a moment, we're gonna find that Jesus says exactly the same thing. Don't let the world teach you theology. It just comes out of this passage in spades. And, and the theological issue in this passage ha has to do with this. It really just basically boils down to this one question. Is there life after death? That, that's the theological issue in the text. And we're introduced to this group of elite leaders in Jerusalem known as the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are leaders in Jerusalem. And, and they, like the Pharisees and the scribes and, and the elders before them, have, have come to question Jesus. They've, they've come to question the authority of Jesus. And specifically in this case, what he has to say about resurrection. Now, when we hear the word resurrection, we typically think Jesus is resurrection. That's not what we're talking about here. We're actually talking about our resurrection. Are you and I raised from the dead? Is there any way, shape, or form that we live beyond our physical death? Or is death, in fact, the end? And even though th this group of Sadducees is, is not really interested in Jesus' answer, even though this is just a setup trying to expose Jesus, I, I want you to know this, Jesus just answers their question straight up. 
It's interesting because in chapter 20, up until this point, up until verse 27, where we'll pick it up today, uh, Jesus gets lots of questions by religious leaders in Jerusalem, and he doesn't really answer any. He gets this question. He knows it's to try to expose him. And and this one, he just takes them dead serious. And he does it because this is a really, really important question. You see, where you will spend eternity depends on your answer to this question. What you believe about death, it depends on your answer to this question. How you live today, it it depends on your answer to this question. So I want you to take out your Bible because I want you to see the question and I want you to see how Jesus responds to it. It's Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 27. If you have a Bible, take and turn there. And I'm going to ask you to stand one more time for the reading of God's word. Would you do that? I didn't say kick over a bottle. I just said stand. (laughs) Here it is, 27. Now, there came to him some of the Sadducees. Him, there's Jesus. There came to Jesus some of the Sadducees who say that there's no resurrection. They questioned him saying, teacher... Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and he has a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died childless. And the second and the third married her. And in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also in the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? There's the question. For all seven men, or all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry or are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore because they're like angels. They're like sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but the living, for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. Father, we ask that you'd add your blessing to the reading of your word. Spirit, we pray that you would show us what it means that we would interpret it well, that we would apply it well, and that we would be transformed by it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can take your seat. Now, what I'm about to show you is a very simple illustration. You're going to look at it and go, yep, that's pretty simple. And, And the reason I'm showing you this simple illustration is because Jesus, in this text, he takes a very complex and very complicated theological issue about death and life after death. And honestly... He answers it pretty simply. He does. And so I want you to see this as we study the text so that we can remember what Jesus has to say here in Luke chapter 20. I want you to imagine this line is your life. Just to imagine this line is your life. It it has a beginning at birth. We all have a beginning and, and, and it has an end. At least physically it has an end at death. The theological issue on the table is, is, is right here. It's the question right here, and that is, what happens right here? What, what is it that takes place at 
death. We, we all agree that we're going to die, right? No, nobody disagrees that we're going to die. We're, we're all going to die. What happens when we die? Is death the end? Or, or is there some way that we live beyond our physical death? That, that's the question. Now, in the text, Jesus uses two phrases that I think will prove very helpful to us as we study it. He, he talks about this period, the present age that you and I live in right now. He just calls it very simply this age. That's it. He, he calls this present world this age. And he calls this, what he's about to unpack out here, we don't know what this means yet, but he's about to unpack this, and he just simply calls it that age. This age and that age. And this age is separated from that age by death, okay? Now, we're going to unpack this text in just these two categories. It's the way that Jesus dissects it, and so we're just going to look at it in that same way. We're going to look at this age, and we're going to look at that age. And one of the reasons that we're going to do that is because the Sadducees are all about this age. In fact, we can just put them up here, and I'm not sure I can spell Sadducees, so we're just going to go with this. They're, they're sad, so there we go, right there. Sadducees are right here, uh, over here on, on this age. That's where, that's where they are. That's their whole view. That This world is all there is. And to understand why they are so focused on this age, we have to understand a little bit about them. The Sadducees were the ruling elite in the city of Jerusalem. They were um, intellectual. They were very smart. They were conservative. Um, they, they were leaders in the community. They, they really were. They, they were priests. It was a group of priests. In fact, they held the majority in the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin, highest court of justice in Jerusalem. They, they held the majority of members in the 71-member court, and they, by tradition, maintained the position of high priest. So a Sadducee was always the high priest. They aligned themselves with the Roman government in Jerusalem at the time to cooperate with the Roman government so that they might, their, they might maintain their very privileged position in the city. These were high-status people, very affluent high-status people. And there in the city, they had developed over some time a very aristocratic kind of political influence in the city. Now, the, the Sadducees were known for their emphasis on the Torah. They were known for their emphasis on the writings of Moses, also known as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament where we find the law, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If it didn't say it in the Torah, if Moses didn't write it, they, they weren't very interested in it weren't interested in the oral tradition of the Pharisees. They weren't even really interested in the rest of the New Testament. They just took this very literal, conservative approach to the law, and that was their interpretation of Moses' writings. Now, it, it was their emphasis that, that led to this perspective and, and began to develop in them this, this core doctrine that said, there's no resurrection, they denied eternal life. And the reason they denied eternal life is because they believed that they couldn't find anything about resurrection in the Torah. Makes sense, right? So they denied eternal life. They rejected resurrection. And so what they said was, they believed this, that when a person's physical body dies, the soul perishes with it. This age is all there is. Now I mentioned that they were smart. They were very smart. It's part of the reason that they maintained their high status in the city of Jerusalem, in the holy city. 
And, and they had developed this, this question. It's kind of like a riddle, a stumper kind of question, like, um, like uh, could God make a rock so big that he couldn't lift it? That kind of a question. No matter how you answer it, you, you can't win. And in the question, they, they had asked all the political leaders in Jerusalem. They, they'd asked the philosophers. They'd asked the Pharisees. Nobody could answer their question. And so they come and pitch it to Jesus, hoping to stump him as well. And the question has to do with this concept of leveret marriage. Part of the law, Deuteronomy chapter 25, where, where God through Moses says that it's pretty simple. It sounds a little confusing in the text. It's, it's actually pretty simple. If a man and woman are married, man dies, they don't have any children. It's the obligation of the brother to take the widow and have children to his deceased brother's name. That, that's it. And the purpose of it was so that they might maintain the family name on down through generations. It was kind of one way to maintain some sense of afterlife. My legacy goes on. In fact, the primary reason for marriage in the Old Testament was procreation. It was to, to continue the family name and it was continue the, the tribal name. Now, why is the tribal name important? Well, because the nation of Israel, God's chosen nation knows that, that from Israel, from a woman in the tribe of Judah, in the line of David would come who? The Messiah, Jesus Christ. Very important for them to keep marrying and having children. So, so the Sadducees take this concept of leveret marriage, they take this idea and they create this extreme hypothetical case about one woman and seven brothers that never have any children. And they use it to argue this. They use it to argue that if a man and a woman are to have a monogamous relationship in life after death or in eternity, if that's the case, then in this hypothetical, it's impossible. That's what they're arguing. And so if in fact that logic holds, therefore then the resurrection or life after death is impossible because it doesn't align with the law of Moses. Are you tracking with me? You get, everybody get that, right? That, that's what they're saying right here. It's a brilliant question. Scripture cannot contradict itself. Presumably, no matter how Jesus answers the question, he can't win. He, he says no to leverite marriage, leverite marriage. He, he says no to that, and he dismisses the Scripture. He dismisses the law of God. He says no, there isn't a resurrection. No, no one's raised from the dead. There's no life after death, and the whole gospel falls apart. See, the Sadducees think they have him. They're convinced that this dilemma shows a lack of logic in the resurrection and they're convinced that this life, this age is in fact all there is. Now before we lump the Sadducees in with the Pharisees and the other religious scribes and all the other idiots we've seen in Luke, before we do that, before we go there, I, I just want us to consider this question for a moment because I think they're asking a pretty good question. Don't you and I have questions about death? Don't you and I have questions about life after death? Well, we all know people who would say that this is the end right here. Know lots of people who would say, yeah, I don't know if it's the end, but I'm really not sure about what happens after death. I really don't know. I'm not just talking about people in the world. I'm talking about people in this room. We have questions about death and life after death. And so did the Sadducees. See, the Sadducees are like modern-day cynics. They are. 
I actually think they were way ahead of their time. They were, they'd fit much better in today's modern society than they did then. They, they're smart, they're moral, they believe some things about the Bible, they're leaders in their community, they, they just don't believe in the supernatural. If it can't be explained, they, they don't believe it. They're, they're a lot like us. How many times have I had a conversation with someone who says, yeah, most of the Bible I'm good with, or I, I get some of it, most of it I'm good with. Miracles like Jonah and a fish, uh, huh, that's a stretch. Life after death, I'm, I'm just, you know, I want to go there. I, I'm just not sure. I don't know. I was playing in a golf tournament this past week in, in Jackson, Tennessee, and one of my good buddies asked me after dinner, he said, man, Bill, what, what do you say as a pastor to someone who's just lost a child? What, what do you say about death? And what do you say about life after death? I wrestle with that question. We all do. And here it is. The Sadducees just kind of serve it up in the text. And Jesus answers it for them, and he answers it for us. And Jesus answers the question in two parts. He, he takes kind of the secondary part first, the, the part about marriage, and he addresses it. This, this is not the primary question, but there is a question here about marriage. And he answers that question to show that this age is not like that age. That's why he answers the first part of the question. Uh, about marriage. You see, the Sadducees, they make a, a bad assumption. They assume that if there is, in fact, life after death, then, then that age will look like this age. Then marriage in that age will look like marriage in this age, specifically. And Jesus says, no, no, not at all. In, in this age, people marry. In, in that age, no marriage. Now, I realize that may come as a surprise to some of you. Some of you just, just got sad. You, you did. What you're experiencing right now in marriage is pretty good. It's pretty great. And, and, and you're just going like, gosh, I, I don't know if I like that about eternity. Some of you had a fight on the way to church. <laughs> you're like, thank you, God. I believe in the resurrection. Like, sign me up. That's it. Yeah, no. The point is, this age is not like that age. And what Jesus is saying here is, is, you know what? No matter how good your relationship is with your spouse right now, how, how deep that love relationship is, uh, it, it does not compare to the purity and the quality of relationships with that person and with other believers in heaven. In fact, those relationships then and there, including the one with your spouse, though it won't be in marriage, those relationships are so beautiful and so glorious in the presence of God that we won't even miss what is so great right now. See, th these relationships, even our marriage relationships and our family relationships are filled with sin and conflict and hurt and sickness and pain. In that age, Jesus is saying, none of that. None of that. When Jesus takes it a step farther on this leveret marriage thing, he, he says, in fact... In that age, there's not even a need for marriage because there's no need for procreation. Why? Because none of us die. In fact, in that age, we'll be like angels, immortal like angels. We won't be like angels in all ways, but we will be immortal like angels. No need for angels to be fruitful and multiply. And the same is true for you and me. It's just true. In fact, the only children in heaven will be, in fact, you and I. God's children. And Jesus calls us here the sons and daughters of God, the sons and daughters of the resurrection. 
So Jesus takes on marriage. He, he elevates it. He doesn't slip into this either or thing. He just goes, hey, sorry, but you guys don't understand anything about that age. And because you don't understand anything about that age, it's not really that good of a question. And then Jesus goes on. And, and this is where he gets to the question underneath the question. What's the real question? We, we've talked about it. Is there life after death? That's the real question. Sadducees don't believe in resurrection and Jesus addresses it head on. And I want you to look back at verse 37 and 38 just for a moment because this is where he speaks to it. He just says it straight out, but the dead are raised. They are, that's our side screens. They, they are, even Moses showed, here's his defense. In the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, 38. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Remember that the Sadducees, the emphasis is all on the Torah, all on the writings of Moses. They're convinced that the Torah does not say anything about resurrection. Jesus takes them right back to their source. He, he uses Moses' own words to show them how terribly wrong they are about life after death. And this is where learning to study your Bible is so important because in this case, it all comes down to verb tense. In Exodus chapter three, God's speaking to Moses and God says, I am, one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, it doesn't sound that crazy because we know him as the, the fathers of Israel. The problem is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for hundreds of years when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Only way that God can say that is if in fact they are not dead. Physically passed away, yes, but spiritually they are alive. They live on to eternity. What Jesus is saying here is that even Moses affirms, God himself says, I am currently, presently, God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. They, they have lived on past their physical death. And so what Jesus is saying is death is just but a doorway from this age to that age. And the real question is where you're going to spend that age. Will you spend that age like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with God? Or will you spend that age like the Sadducees separated from God? That's why this question is so important. That's why the question is so important. All of eternity hinges on the question. Where you and I will spend eternity depends on what we believe about our own resurrection. About what we believe about death. Where we spend eternity depends on our theology. Don't let the Sadducees teach you theology. Don't let the modern day cynics teach you theology. Where does Jesus go for his theology? God's word. Exodus chapter three. Old Testament in this case. Let this book teach you theology about who God is and about what is to come. You know what's crazy? It's really sad. The, the, the Sadducees are, they're kind of right about themselves. They, they don't get it all right. They, they don't believe that there is life after death, but they're actually right that they won't spend eternity with God. 
They won't. They'll spend eternity separated from God. That's where they're a little mixed up about eternity, but, but they're right about their presence with God. In fact, I want to take us back just, just for a moment to this phrase in, in verse 35, and, and I'm going to kind of land the application here. So look at it with me for just a minute. Verse 35 says this, but those who are considered worthy, boy, that's a key word, worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead. See, the reason the Sadducees won't spend eternity with God is because they aren't considered worthy of resurrection from the dead. They're not considered worthy of attaining that age. That's true in a spiritual sense. We're going to look at that. But it's also true in this case, actually, in a very literal sense. This is the first time, only time, last time we hear from the Sadducees in the whole Bible. After 70 AD, they are erased from history. Ne literally never hear from the Sadducees again. Spiritually, the same is true. So for you and I, we, we have to understand what it means to be considered worthy so that we might spend eternity in that age with God. And what it is to be considered worthy is actually a very interesting thing. And Jesus doesn't address it specifically here or explicitly here in this text. And the reason he doesn't is because he, he doesn't need to. He spent the whole gospel of Luke addressing this question. And so I'm just going to distill down the whole gospel of Luke for you right now. Here it is. Jesus came to earth because you and I are not worthy. That's why he came. Jesus came, he died on a cross, he was raised from the grave himself so that you and I can be considered worthy. Whole gospel of Luke, two statements. I guess we didn't need to spend 18 months studying it. I guess, I guess we didn't. That's it, that, that's the gospel of Luke. You see, we're not worthy, why? Because of our own sin. What's sin, Bill? Well, sin is just, it's separation from God by our own choices. It's, it's pride, it's judgment, it's selfishness, it's rebellion, it's independence from God. We're all born into sin. We all make decision, decisions that reinforce our sin nature. We are not considered worthy because of our sin. Worthiness to be in relationship with God for eternity, worthiness requires holiness, perfect righteousness. We cannot be holy because of our sin. Therefore, we are considered worthy no, or not worthy. None of us can be worthy except Jesus Christ. And that's why he came. His worthiness, his perfect righteousness demonstrated in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, his victory over death from the grave. His worthiness, his perfect righteousness, his holiness, that's what covers the penalty for our sin. And in that moment, God sees us through the work of Jesus Christ and he declares us worthy. See the word for worthy here, the Greek word, it means to be counted worthy. Not something that we can do. It means to be made worthy. It's something that's done for us. And we're considered worthy by placing our faith in the worthiness of Jesus Christ. 
by placing our trust in him. And when we place our trust in him, we are declared worthy and we become sons and daughters of God, sons and daughters of the resurrection. And get this, God does not leave his children in the grave. He doesn't. He raises them up that we might live with him for eternity. I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, I grew up in a really good home with great parents. Uh, My parents trusted in Jesus Christ as their savior in college at the University of Arkansas. They uh, did not learn to read or write there, but they did learn to believe in Jesus. And so that's good. And and so they started walking with Christ. They were passionate about walking with Christ. And and uh, they, they joined a ministry team that became Family Life. You might know it today. It's still there in Little Rock. They moved to Dallas for a short period and were part of a, a church plant. When they moved back to Little Rock with Family Life, they, they decided to plant a church. My dad's not seminary trained, um, but he is passionate about his relationship with God. And he built a little core team and they started a church. And, and I grew up in a church a, a whole lot like this one. In fact, very, very similar to this one. My dad was instrumental in helping to plant this one. God grew that church and he's been instrumental in planting a lot of churches. And we, we are the very little offspring of the church that I was raised in. So it's a privilege to be teaching and leading. I, I thought for years that I wasn't anything like my dad. <laughs> Most young boys do. I'm a lot like my dad, unfortunately. Here I am, I'm here teaching. So, so that, yeah, that's beside the point. The, the, I grew up in a church like this one and, and enjoyed it. And um, you know, when I was about four, uh, I remember thinking, you know, I, I, I want to be a Christian because everybody around me is a Christian. I didn't understand anything, but had some interest in what it meant to be a Christian. When I was seven, uh, I remember very literally thinking, I, I do not want to go to hell. So I, I'm interested in heaven. Still didn't really understand what it meant to put my trust in Christ. When I was 11, growing up in a Christian home, I'd heard a lot, but I, I began to understand some things. I went with my dad to a... Um, an event in town and there's a pastor that got up and he he shared just what I did about the worthiness of Jesus Christ and how our sin separates us from Jesus Christ and how Christ came and he died that we might be saved, that we might be restored to relationship with him. And I understood it. I I got it and I believed it. And uh, my dad was a part of the event. And so he he helped several begin to understand that after the event, kind of down in the front of the room. And on our way home, we drove home, we pulled into the garage in this old station wagon. I jumped up in the front seat and I said, dad, I I believe that. and, And I want that to be true for me. And he asked me to explain what I meant and I shared what I just shared with you. And he said, yeah, I think, I think you do. And, and so I placed my trust in Christ and I just told God that I, I, I believe that he died for me, that Christ did and that, that I could be saved and that I needed a savior, that my sin distanced me from him. And, and I, I believe that uh, in that moment I, I was saved and began to grow. And in fact, my life did change even at 11, no, no egregious sins before 11, but I, my life did change after I read a story about Jonathan Edwards, who was a great preacher in revival during Great Awakening. And I read this story that just, it just stripped my gears. And so I went across the street and I shared my faith with my 11-year-old neighbor friend, Les. Les trusted Christ, right, right there on the spot. I, I was blown away. I began to grow in my faith. And in high school, I, I began to share with some other of my friends. And there are others of my friends that trusted Christ in high school. When I was 18, I, I stood up on a platform like this and I was baptized in front of the church. And I looked at the church and I said, 
I said, you know what? I, I want to be identified with Christ for all of my adult life. I, I want to make that public, and I'm doing that here. And, and I grew. I grew like crazy in college. We, we started a Christian fraternity in college. We'd have these parties, no drinking of these parties, and like 2,000 people would show up. These big dance parties. In the middle of these dance parties, I'd get up and share my testimony. Insane, totally insane. I'm not sure I'd have the guts to do that today. I I did then. God just grew me like crazy during college. I I want you to know, it's not all been that sweet. It it hasn't. Christian life is not an easy life because we live in a fallen world. And when I got married, I, I, I was exposed for the selfish sinner I was. And marriage has a way of doing that, doesn't it? just exposes us. My pride, my judgment. I was critical. I, I, did, I couldn't engage with my wife in, a, in an emotional kind of way and connect with her there. Man, there were some dry years. My inability to be a, a husband that God invites me to be, my in, inability to be the kind of dad God invites me to be. It was difficult. I, I want you to know I, I'm, I'm such a performer, achiever. I am so driven. I'm fighting it all the time. I'm so worried about what people think about me. If I'm pleasing others, then I'm doing okay. My worth, my identity, it's okay. If, if I'm not pleasing others, my, my worth, my identity is not that okay. And that landed me in severe depression five years ago. I spent six months in bed, just depressed. Took me about a year to recover from that. Now, it, this journey is not an easy journey. It's not. I'm learning to understand that God loves me. He he loves me as his own son. Just being Bill is good enough for him, not Bill plus the performer, not Bill plus the achiever. No, just being Bill is good enough for him. And I'll tell you this, in spite of all that, the decision that I made to trust Christ, it changed everything. It changed everything about my life. It changed what I view, the way I view eternity. It changed what I believe about resurrection. It changed my view of life after death. It was the most important decision I have ever made because it answers the most important question. So I'll just say it straight up. I believe in the resurrection. I do. Do you? Do you really? I want to give you just a moment to go before the Lord and consider what you believe. What you believe about the resurrection. What you believe about life after death. And I'm going to ask the Spirit of God and I encourage you to do the same to to show you what's true and to show you what matters most.